And hear the word of the Lord. These verses are found in chapter Acts 15, 6 to 12. The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither uh, our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. You know, everybody who comes up here to, to read and pray does such an awesome job. I probably shouldn't say this, but Jill is still my favorite. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Um, we are in a series called Back to Our Roots, and we're looking at the early church, where, where we came from. We're, we're looking at ways in which we can learn from the early church uh, and ask God, what kind of church have you called us to be? What's it look like if we as a church are, are faithful in loving God, if we as a church are faithful in loving each other, if we as a church are faithful in loving our neighbor, what's that look like? That's why we're looking um, at the, these different churches in these different cities throughout the book of Acts. Now, if you're new, my hope is that this series will help you weigh out if you want to join our church family or not. And, and others of you, you might be skeptical. You like, you like Jesus, but not his church. And I want to tell you, that's actually pretty common. The truth is, God wants to bless the world with the truth and love of Christ, and he expects to do that through us. And we're supposed to be all about that. And this series is to make sure that we are. Now, so far in the series, we looked at the church in the city of Antioch. It was a sending church that, that selflessly gave away their resources and, and their leaders uh, instead of hoarding them to share the good news and the blessing of Jesus. And then the next week, we looked at the church in Ephesus, a church that was shaped by, by truth and love. And today, we're looking at the church in Jerusalem. A church that gets grace. Now, the context, we didn't read the whole chapter, but I'm going to give you a little bit 
of context for the passage that Jill just read for us. Our context for our passage is that these early church leaders get together in Jerusalem for an important meeting to debate theology. That sounds like a ton of fun, right? For nerds, maybe. But I think if you were there and you were flying the wall, you'd be incredibly intrigued by what they were talking about. The topic they're debating is significant enough to be recorded here in the scriptures. It was significant enough to set the stage for the rest of the book of Acts. It was significant enough that ultimately it it creates a church that gets grace. So we're going to look at it and we're going to ask three questions. And if you're taking uh, notes using the handout that's in your bulletin, the first question is this. Why is it important? Now, if you, if you are familiar with Apostle Paul, you know that he was used by God as a key leader to launch the Christian movement. You know that, that he traveled far and wide to share the good news of Jesus. And so many people's lives were being transformed that entire cities were being transformed. The Apostle Paul wrote most of the New Testament. Most of the New Testament are, that, are these letters that he wrote to different churches, and millions upon millions of people since then have read them and studied them, and millions of people are named after him. All of us know a Paul or two or five. Paul is this pillar in the early church, and he hears about this debate, this issue that that they're debating. And the Apostle Paul puts the brakes on his entire ministry to be a part of this discussion in Jerusalem. So this should tell us a little bit about how important this issue was. This issue was not insignificant. This issue was not boring. This issue was not just for theological nerds. It, It was incredibly critical. Now you need to know that up to this point in church history, most by far, most Christians were Jews. But then what we see in the book of Acts is that God pushed open the doors. He pushed them wide open to include all nations, Greeks and Romans and Persians, all of these non-Jews, these, these Gentiles, all of them becoming Christians. And some of the original Christian leaders said, you know, that's great and all, But if you really want to be in the Jesus club, you have to be like us. And they say, look at verse 2, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And I imagine the Gentiles hearing that and say, do what? (laughs) Are, 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 Are you kidding? That's brutal. Yep, got to do it. It's part of our religious heritage. That sounds like a hazing, like the worst hazing ever. (laughs) Now, for the record, I did not plan to talk about circumcision at our family service. It just worked out that way. I told Ming, he said he's looking forward to a very interesting conversation with his kids on the ride home today. Now, this issue is weird to us 
because we don't consider it to be an important religious practice in our culture. So why in the world are we even talking about it? Because what was actually at stake here is an eternally relevant question. And the eternally relevant question is, what is it that makes you right with God? That is foundational. That's the game right there. That's all of life right there. What is it that makes you right with God? Paul sees what's happening here. He hears about it. He observes it. He sees that the good news of Jesus, the gospel that answers that critical question, was in danger of being hijacked. These leaders were saying that that who Jesus is and, and what Jesus has done for us to save us was not enough. You also got to do this to be saved. That kind of religion right there crushes people. I have seen it happen. We see it in our day, not just in their day, we see it in our day as well. It destroys people. Extremely relevant back then, and it is still extremely relevant today. Scholar William Hendrickson in his commentary has us imagine us that we're dying of thirst and someone comes to us with a tall, cool glass of water. But then you find out that, that uh, he added just a splash of, of deadly poison to it. It's 99.9% life-giving water and 0.1% poison. Is that any good anymore? It's useless, right? It's no good at all. In fact, more than that, it is deadly. In the same way, if you add anything to the gospel of grace, it is no longer the gospel of saving grace. More than that, it's deadly. And so this is why this meeting in Jerusalem was so important for the church back then and so important for our church today. It is, here's what I, here's what I know and what I see all the time. In, in so many, in, in, in every single Christian struggles with it, and then so many churches have, have embraced this idea of adding to the gospel, but that's the temptation. It is far more tempting than you might realize for you and for me to add to the gospel. If Christian leaders in the early church in Jerusalem struggled with it, we will too. For us, it's not about the Jewish ceremonial law of circumcision, but other things. And they could be good things. Say you decide that you want to be a faithful follower of Jesus, and then you hear to be truly accepted by God, you better also not you know, drink, cuss, or chew, or go with girls that do. Right? Or, since God saved you, you've you got to pay him back by going to church and reading the Bible. Or, you have, to send to your, your, you have to send your kids to a Christian school, or God will curse them. Or, you need to be a, a Republican, or you need to be a Democrat if you want God to bless you and America. Look, all those might be good things. And right now the Republicans saying, yeah, except for the Democrat part. <laughs> Democrats saying, yeah, except for the Republican part, right? Look, there are countless ways to honor God. 
whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God and that's great. But if you think that you can make God love you more, if you think that you are better than other people, that you are more acceptable to God by what you do or by what you don't do, you've added to the gospel of grace and you've turned it into something poisonous and deadly. So how do you know we don't, always, we, don't always, we don't always have the self-awareness that we've done this. How do you know if you're adding to the gospel? I'll give you a couple hints. First of all, you have a critical spirit. You demand people to be like you, and if they won't be like you or can't be like you, you push them away, and you don't love them. There is no excuse for Christians to be like this. I am tempted all the time. I find that it's very easy for me to be ungracious towards ungracious people. Okay? I'm tempted. Even, even, I knew I'd be tempted to be ungracious even while I preached, which is why I add in little letters here on the side, don't yell here. <laughs> serious as a heart attack. I get worked up. I know a couple. I've known them for years. They were heartbroken. They wanted to, part of their dream for their family was to have their own children, and they couldn't have children. And so uh, the husband was talking to his uh, dad about it, long-time Christian. I mean, decades. And his dad told him, why do you expect God to give you a child if you're not going to church? I know a lesbian couple who mustered up the courage to show up to a church only to receive cold condemning stares that convinced them not to come back. I've seen entire families ruined by self-righteous, heavy-handed, arrogant pastors. This pushes people away from Jesus and his family. Do you see how critical this is? Do you see that, that this is not just some nuance of the gospel that you can take or leave? It's everything. That's what the whole Reformation was about. we got to be a church that gets grace. And if we do, second main point here is what is the result? We can see it in the text. I, I'm sure this debate in Jerusalem got, got heated and passionate, but the result is that the gospel of grace became crystal clear and vitally central to the church. So this was a critically formative moment in Christianity in our text we see there are two many speeches by two key leaders, Peter and James. And in Peter's speech, in verse 8, he says that by God's grace, God, who knows the heart, bore witness to the Gentiles by giving the Gentiles the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. 
because of God's grace, there is no distinction between Jews and Gentiles. Because of God's grace, there's no comparison, comparing. Because of God's grace, there's no us against them mentality. Because of God's grace, you know, no one should be thinking I'm better than you. Because of God's grace, no one should be self-righteously trying to be superior enough for God to accept them. Because Peter says, God cleansed their hearts by faith just like he did for you and for me. We can't cleanse our own hearts. So why should we be religiously condemning of others who can't either? We all need God's grace. And the problem is we forget Grace is what makes true Christianity liberating. It's what makes true Christianity joyful. And it's for all nations, for all people. But when we forget grace, it becomes burdensome. A burden that no one can bear. That's why Peter says, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke or a heavy load on the neck of the disciples that, that, a yoke that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. They forgot that they received God's grace. They were demanding of others what was not demanded of them. Peter says that if you think that you need to add anything to the gospel, it will grind you down. And when you share that so-called gospel with others, it will grind them down too. You cannot improve on God's grace, amen? Martin Luther, German reformist, said, why would you think that if God was not willing to forgive you for the sake of Christ's work, that he would ever be willing to forgive you for the sake of yours? If Jesus' work on the cross is not good enough to forgive you from sin and death, what makes you think that your work is going to be good enough? It's not. We can't earn God's forgiveness ever. So Peter says, but here's the good news. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. This is the whole point. It's the point of this meeting, this, this debate, this council that they're holding to be absolutely clear that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, not by being good enough. Because we can't be. It's impossible. So that's Peter's speech. But then James replies. James responds. The context of this debate, James responds with a little speech of his own. James here is known as James the Just. He's known as, as Jesus' brother. He's known as a, as a great man of prayer and, 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 and piety. He was the leader of, of the church here in Jerusalem. He is a strong religious Jew. And, and so the, the assembly's thinking, you know, he's got to disagree with Peter and, and say that you've got to get the Jewish circumcision to be saved, Right? So you can imagine the council as he stands up to speak. 
What's James going to say? James raises his voice and he says, let me set some things straight here. I agree. It's all about grace. Verse 13, James said, brothers, listen to me. Peter's related how God first visited the Gentiles to make from them a people for his name. He just used the phrase, a people for his own name, to describe the Gentiles. That, that was a meaningful and, and personal phrase of, of affection used to refer to the Jews, God's chosen people in the Old Testament. And James now uses it here to describe the Gentile Christians? What James is doing is he's, he's pointing out that because of God's sovereign grace, because of his sovereign choice, because of his love, unconditional love, there are no second-class Christians. Because of God's grace, anyone can be a part of God's family. And he tells them, listen, we overlooked something. This was part of God's plan all along. And then he drops some Old Testament prophecy on him from the book of Amos, chapter 9. And he says this, In that day I will raise up all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Like, how did we miss that one? And then James concludes with a decision, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. He says we should write the Gentiles in Antioch, the Christian Gentiles in Antioch, a letter. And that letter should say, For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden. We will not trouble you with this anymore. This right here is a formative moment for Christianity. The gospel message became crystal clear. And so that's why Paul, in one of his letters to, to the church in Ephesus, he says it this way. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's what this is all about right here. And if you add anything, anything to the gospel, it's Poison, the pure gospel of grace, brings life and relief and joy. That is the fruit of the pure gospel. Third and last point. What lessons can we learn? I mean, what does this mean for us today, our lives here and now? I'll give you four things. First one is this. We all need to realize that there is no greater hindrance to Christianity than adding to the gospel. And unfortunately, adding to the gospel is pandemic. It is everywhere. And nobody can recognize it. And if they do, they shrug their shoulders and say, well, they're doing some good stuff. I'm not trying to cultivate a critical spirit among us. I just want to make sure that we understand what the gospel of grace is and recognize when something has been added to the gospel. That's, that's critical for us. 
So it's such a big deal. That's why all the apostles and elders came together to hammer this out. Uh, so many people think that Christianity is about being good enough to be accepted by God, and that crushes people and drives them away from Jesus and his church. It's a poisonous lie. But here's, here's, here's why we struggle with it. One reason anyway. When we see that studying hard gives you good grades, and then good grades get you a good college, and then a good college supposedly gives you a good job, and then a good job gives you a good life. The problem is we apply that to Christianity and we make it all about performing. So Jesus comes into our world and he says, you can't perform your way into a relationship with an all-holy God. It doesn't work. On your own, Jesus says, you're doomed. And so Jesus adds, I did the performing for you. And I did, I covered all the bases. He says, this is how it works. You receive my work as your own. That's That's grace. And God gets all the glory for that. So Jesus shows up and, and, you know, he turns everything upside down with that message. And then this passage shows us that all the religious people will always be tempted to flip things back and it ruins our central message. The gospel, the good news of Jesus is that Jesus lived a perfect life for you and he took our punishment for sin as our substitute. So when you put your hope and your trust in him, what happens here is that, that he clothes you in the glorious righteousness of Christ, making you gloriously complete. God accepts you, not because of what you have done, but because of Jesus and his grace and what Jesus has done for you. Secondly, second takeaway, second lesson. I mentioned this earlier. It's so easy for us to forget the gospel. Even, even people who preach it regularly every Sunday. Paul says in Galatians that he had to correct Peter, the one who just declared the gospel by grace. Paul had to confront Peter and correct him because Peter was, you know, he was eating and fellowshipping with the Gentile Christians until the circumcision club showed up. And when they came into town, Peter ditched his Gentile Christian friends and he joined the religious hypocrites, hypocrites at their table instead. And so Paul says, I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. And Paul had to set them all straight and remind them of the gospel of grace, especially Peter, the apostle, the disciple who spent years with Jesus himself. If Peter can forget, guess what? We can forget. We get gospel amnesia. Happens all the time. This is, this is why, as a central value for our church, that we will regularly preach the gospel of grace here every single Sunday morning. Every Sunday morning, 
It is why that we reflect on the gospel of grace together in our home groups, in our smaller DNA groups. We forget God's grace, that by his grace, we are his sons. By his grace, we are his daughters, that Jesus lived perfectly for us and gave us the credit. And then we live in response out of gratitude and loyalty and with joy. Now, remembering the gospel, the truth of Jesus, it happens best in community. Being by yourself, it just doesn't work. And we see that in our passage. They had to wrestle with, the, with this truth. And they had to talk about it and process it together. Community brings, together, brings clarity and understanding. Uh, we need community to grow and better understand the gospel, better, to better apply it to our lives, because what it does when we remind each other, it, it, it stirs our hearts with love, love and loyalty for Jesus, and it shapes our lives and shapes our church, shapes our witness. We need to remind each other because we forget. So, What's, what's one thing that we can do? What's one thing you can do to make sure that you don't forget? Well, last week we mentioned gospel DNA groups. That's great. Sign up on a card. See charity. See me. Three men, three women getting together to encourage each other in, in the gospel. Maybe you can't do that. That's an option. I'll list that first. But if you can't do that, here's what I encourage you to do. Ask other brothers and sisters who you have observed applying the gospel to their life and encouraging other people in the gospel, ask them, invite them, deliberately like go up to them, go out of your way, tap them on the shoulder and ask them to speak truth into your heart and life. Ask them to observe your life. Go to them with questions. And maybe you see, the, maybe you, see um, you know, Tom, a wing, you know, building up his and encouraging his, his children in, in the gospel and the truth of, of the Lord and his grace. And maybe you go to Tom and, and, and you say, can we hang out together? Because I, I see something different about, about your life and I just want to kind of, I, I want to learn how, to, how that could be part of my family too. Or you, you see a, a, you know, a single brother who, you know, he's not getting smashed all the time and he's, he's not putting notches on his belt with all the college girls or anything like that. For some reason, he's like on fire for God and he's full of joy. And, and you know, he's got a strong witness and, and you're struggling and you're like, man, I know, I, I, I want that kind of heart. And you go up to that person, talk to them, ask them, can, we need to hang out. Can you carve out some time for me? So, so my encouragement to you is identify people. Think of somebody, if you're not in a DNA group or something, think of somebody you can go to and meet with and ask them, tell them, you're looking for somebody that can encourage you in the gospel so that you can be more in step with the gospel like the Apostle Paul was. Or show you how you're out of step with the gospel like Peter was in the book of Galatians. That is one simple thing you can do. And you don't need to sign up on a card for that. You can just do it on your own. Okay? Third, grace leads to love. In verse 28, in James' letter to the Gentile Christians, he says, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. 
this might seem a little confusing, right? Because he just made it clear that obeying the ceremonial law does not save you. God's grace does. So why does he give restrictions that sound like ceremonial law? Well, his point is that God's grace sets them free to abstain not only from obvious sin like sexual immorality, but also free to accommodate the sensitivities of their Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. He doesn't say, hey, now that you know, that's all clear, that, that the gospel is all about grace, who cares about your Jewish brothers and sisters who struggle with them? Forget those losers. No, he's encouraging them to be gracious like the Apostle Paul, who is passionate about the gospel of grace. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says, For I am free from all. I've made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. And he goes on to say, I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessing. John Newton said, Like... Paul, we are to be a reed in non-essentials or flexible in the non-essentials and an iron pillar in the essentials. Fourth and last lesson here. Grace brings freedom and joy. So these Christian Gentiles, they receive this letter. These Christian uh, Gentiles in Antioch receive this letter um, that, um, that tells them they don't need to be circumcised to be saved. And then it says, they rejoiced. I would too. <laughs> they, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Well, why, did they, why did they rejoice? Well, you know, I've been throwing this word around circumcision like it's not weird, but it is a little weird. At least to us, because it's from a different time and different culture that we can't fully absorb or, or understand. In a short video clip I saw last week, Tim Keller is doing some teaching, and he said, why in the world did God mark his Old Testament people with circumcision? Why was that the mark of his covenant relationship between him and his people? And he says, why didn't he just give everyone tattoos? <laughs> Keller explains that most theologians will say there is significance to the fact that circumcision, especially in a day before modern medical tools, circumcision was gory and bloody and intimate and gross, and a result of being vulnerable. He says that the mutilation points to the penalty that, that we deserve for our destructive sin that, that broke our covenant relationship with God. The penalty of the curse cuts off our, our intimate, life-giving covenant relationship with him. And, and we've experienced this. When we wrong someone and they know it, or when we cheat on somebody and they know it, or, or when we lie about someone and they find out, it ruins the relationship. Intimacy 
is cut off. Paul has some peculiar words in in, uh, Colossians chapter 2 where he says, In him, in Christ also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Circumcision, of course, what's he talking about here? And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And so what we're gathering here is that this really is about the cross. On the cross, the re- Jesus' relationship with the Father was cut off brutally. Jesus was experiencing the cosmic a curse of the covenant so that we could experience the cosmic blessing of the covenant. You know, after oh, Tim Keller added, after the, after the fall when Adam and Eve rejected God, they lost paradise. And they experienced separation from, from God and, and true life. And then who guards the way back into the garden? It was an angel with a sword, a really big knife. He says, this, this shows us that the only way back to the tree of life is to go under the sword. And you know, in a sense, Jesus did that for us. And for Jesus, circumcision points to the penalty and curse. But for us, it points to grace and blessing true life found in our restored covenant relationship with our Father. And it's all because of His grace. So, when we see, when we see how Jesus kept the covenant relationship with God perfectly for us, and that He took our curse for breaking that covenant relationship, and that we receive grace, not because of anything that we have done, but only because of what Jesus has done, then we can rejoice like these Gentile Christians. The pressure is off. And that leads to freedom and joy. And that is grace that makes us a gracious church. and makes us a church that gets grace and then shares grace. Amen? Would you bow your heads with me?